0: Good morning, my name is Nick Swan, I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. We're going to be continuing our series on the book of Joshua, and the title this morning is Preparing for the Promised Land. Before we we dive in, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are a God who makes and keeps promises. You're a covenant-keeping God. May we embrace all of the promises that you give to us through Christ by faith and by the power of your spirit. May we live in light of these promises filled with joy, obedience, and courage. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. While preparing this message, I was trying to think of instances in my life when I had someone who fought for me or protected me. And an instance that came to mind was when I was in second grade. It was actually a summer after my second grade year. Uh, I was at the baseball diamond. I'm one of three boys, and all three of us would play on the baseball fields at Yorktown, Indiana, the JAA ballpark. And I was sitting there watching my brother play. We were in the stands. I was with my dad. And like all kids do when they're bored at their brother's game, they ask their dad for some cash so they can get some food from the concession stand. So I walk over to the concession stand. It's about, I don't know, 150 yards away. Get my snow cone artificially flavored ice, it's great, and I'm walking my way back, and suddenly this sixth grader comes up to me that's towering over me as a second grader, takes my hat off my head, throws it on the ground, and begins to use his foot to grind it into the gravel. Well, I'm utterly powerless to do anything. My parents are a long ways off. There's no one who's going to help me, and so I'm standing there for about a minute while this guy's doing this. I'm trying to reach for it, not lose my snow cone, and not making any progress. Well, suddenly, somehow, my dad caught an eye of this and so I see him the bully is in front of me I'm here my dad is in the bleacher back behind and I see my dad with some urgency begin to make his way over to this bully well the bully continues has no idea that my dad is coming I with growing glee am seeing that my father is coming to my rescue and immediately as he gets behind the bully says hey what are you doing and immediately bam the guy is gone my dad had come to my rescue I'm sure all of us have stories like this where we were in a predicament... ...and those who love us and care for us came alongside us to rescue us in our time of need. And this morning, God is the hero of the story... ...who is going to come and rescue his people, Israel. He's delivered them out of Egypt. He's preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness. He's brought them into the Promised Land. They just crossed over the Jordan, which God had parted for them... ...so they could walk over on dry land... And this morning, he's going to promise them that as their covenant God, he's going to go before them into battle to give them the land that he has promised to give them. The main point for this morning is this. God fights for and provides for those who by faith embrace his covenant promises. God fights for and provides for those who by faith embrace his covenant promises. This morning, we have three points. Covenant renewal, covenant celebration, and covenant confidence. Covenant renewal, covenant celebration, and covenant confidence. And our first point is covenant renewal. As you can see from my points, covenant is going to feature quite prominently in this message. So for many, this term may be somewhat unfamiliar. So I'm going to take a little bit and unpack what I mean by covenant. What is a covenant? Covenant. So the, most, the, most, the easiest explanation I can make is the covenant we are most familiar with, which is the covenant of marriage. So in marriage, a man and woman come together, and they make vows. They make promises to one another. These are their wedding vows. And these promises are made before God and all of those who have gathered as their witnesses. These promises are then signified with a wedding ring. It is a physical token of the verbal promises they have made to God and before all of these witnesses and then when the minister pronounces them husband and wife they are now united in the covenant of marriage later the couple will consummate this relationship with a physical union and although we don't repeat marriage ceremonies over and over again we do renew that covenant each and every time a married couple comes together in physical union this morning we have god renewing his covenant promises with the israelites and just like in marriage, along with God's covenant promises, he gives signs that signify the promises that he has made. The sign of circumcision given to Abraham points to God's promises to, to make Israel a great nation and to give them a land and to rule over them and to bless them. Circumcision in this passage is the equivalent of a wedding ring for the people of God. It's a one-time permanent sign that signifies that God has united himself to ...his people in covenant. We also have in this passage God's people celebrating the Passover. And this meal signifies God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt... ...in the moment in time when they were formed as a nation. And unlike circumcision, which happens once... ...this Passover meal is celebrated year after year... ...signifying the ongoing relationship that God has in covenant with his people. Now these promises signified in circumcision... ...they were given to Abraham nearly 500 years before the events... ...that we've just read in this passage. So for 500 years, the Israelites have waited for these promises to come to fruition. They now stand just inside the boundary of the promised land. They're on the cusp of taking possession of the promised land. And in light of this, God renews his covenant signs with the people... ...both circumcision and the Passover meal... ...to remind them that he is a God who keeps his promises... ...and that he is a God who will ultimately fight for his people, Israel. It's a major turning point in the history of redemption, and it's a major turning point in the book of Joshua. Verse 1 points to the manner in which God's deliverance has impacted all of the Canaanites. So they've ...recently crossed over the Jordan on dry ground... ...and it it reminds us of what Marshall talked about last week with Rahab... ...that the, the people in Canaan had heard about the people of Israel going through the Red Sea... ...and so their hearts had melted. They were afraid of this God who delivered them. Forty years later, he does it again, taking them through the Jordan... ...and again, their hearts are melting. God has delivered his people. He's going to fight for his people. He's performed this miraculous sign, and they are now afraid of what this God will do... And so like the bully's heart that melted when it heard my, he heard my dad yell, Hey, what are you doing? So the Canaanites' hearts are melting when they hear a report of what God has done for Israel. Now that the Israelites are within the borders of the promised land, God calls them to pause and he gives Joshua instructions to circumcise all of the men of the second generation. In verses 4 and following, he explains why they were not yet circumcised. So the first generation that came out of Egypt, they had all been circumcised. But God was punishing this generation because of their hardness of heart. And he said, you're going to wander for 40 years. All of you are going to perish in the wilderness. And none of you are going to be able to take possession of the land. And so they've wandered for 40 years. That first generation has entirely died out. And now the second generation that was not circumcised along the way is going to enter the land. And now as an act of obedience, on the cusp of taking the land, God commands all the men to be circumcised, and Joshua obeys this command. And by receiving this sign of circumcision, the people are renewing the covenant that God has made with Abraham, that he is going to make them into a nation, that he's going to give them a land, and that he's going to bless them. And so after all the men have been circumcised, for obvious reasons, they rest in place for a few days to heal up, and then eventually they go on with the next task. So God ends this episode by declaring to Joshua that this act of circumcision will roll back the reproach of the Egyptians. And here's what this means. So imagine you're an Egyptian. God has obviously done these miraculous signs, delivered delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. But then you hear reports of this idiotic people wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so your thought is this God who promised to deliver them actually didn't do so. They're out there wandering and they still have not taken possession of the land. And so in this moment when they've crossed over the Jordan, they've received this sign of circumcision again. It's a moment when God says, Your reproach of wandering in the wilderness has been removed, and I, God, will deliver on the promises that are signified in this covenant sign. So what does this odd episode have to do with us? I mean, think it's 3,000 years ago. Circumcision of a whole nation going over into the promised land, and this is supposed to give them confidence that God is with them. It's an odd episode. If you aren't familiar with the Bible, it seems like a really odd episode. And this meaning of this passage becomes clear as we begin to see this connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism, which we are all familiar with in the New Testament. Circumcision signified God's promises to God's people that if they believed them by faith, they would have the righteousness of Abraham. (laughs) It also signified all these promises that God would make them a nation, that he would give them a land, and that he would bless them. And all these promises, they remain for us. The only difference is we no longer have the sign of circumcision. We have the sign of baptism. Baptism signifies God's fulfillment of all those promises to Abraham... ...which he accomplished in and through Christ. Through faith in Christ, we're cleansed from our sins... ...and we have a righteousness that is not our own... ...a righteousness just like Abraham that we receive by faith. Through Christ, the promises of becoming God's people in God's place... ...under God's rule and blessing are coming to fruition... Peter calls us a holy nation. We are a people. We live as God's people under God's rule, experiencing his blessing in the context of the local church, Christ's church. And like the Israelites in the wilderness, we long for a spiritual homeland. Unlike them, the Israelites who had landed in the promised land, we're still awaiting that promised land, our heavenly new heavens and new earth. Baptism is a sign of all of these blessings, which are ours through faith in Christ. Which leads me to a couple of questions. First, have you received Christian baptism? I want to be clear that baptism does not save. However, Christ has commanded us to be baptized, and anytime time we obey Christ, we receive the blessings of obedience. Baptism is an outward sign that God has given his people to signify our inclusion in the people of God and all of the promises that can be ours by faith. So if you've recently professed faith or maybe you professed faith a long time ago and just never got around to being baptized, God calls you to take this sign of the covenant, the sign of baptism. And if you'd like to be baptized, talk with me, talk with Marshall, and we would be happy to do so. Secondly, and more importantly, and I think will apply to more of us, have you by faith received the promises signified in baptism? Again, baptism doesn't save. Baptism is a sign that points to the promises of God that if you believe, you will be saved. And so it's not enough for us to simply be baptized. We must, by faith, receive the promises that are signified there. So maybe you are an older person, you were baptized as a child, but you're resting in this this thought that just because you've been baptized, you're saved. That is not what saves you. What saves you is belief in that promise. Or you're a young person here who is baptized as a child. God calls you not simply to receive baptism but to receive by faith all of the promises that are offered there. In other words, when we stand before God on the last day, none of us will be able to say to God, you should save me because I've been baptized. We are saved because we believe the promises that were signified in our baptism. So our first point was covenant renewal. And our second point is covenant celebration. Covenant celebration. So let's read together. Look with me again at verses 10 So if circumcision is the one-time sign of entrance into the covenant community, the Passover meal is celebrated annually, and it's a renewal of an ongoing relationship that God has with his people. And the Passover meal was inaugurated in Egypt. It was the final plague prior to the Pharaoh letting all of the people go from Egypt. And in this meal, we have a picture of God's redemption, which comes to us through a blood Sacrifice. So by way of reminder, if you don't know the story, in Egypt God had promised to strike down all of the firstborn of the Egyptians and the Israelites if they did not do this, if they did not sacrifice a Passover lamb, take that blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost of the house. And for all those who did so, the death angel would pass over, preserving the life of all in the house. But if they did not do so, the firstborn of that household would perish. So the Israelites did and were preserved Through a blood sacrifice, life was given to them, and the Egyptians did not. And it was the final plague that finally broke the back of Pharaoh's resistance and allowed them to be freed from their slavery in Egypt. And this meal was to be celebrated every year to commemorate God's deliverance of his people, his redemption of his people out of slavery. And now that they had arrived in the land and had renewed their covenant through circumcision, they're now called to celebrate this Passover meal that signifies their ongoing relationship with their Redeemer. But there was something that was additionally special about this occasion that I want to draw your attention to. Throughout the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, God had provided bread for them miraculously, manna. Each and every day it would gather on the grass, they would gather this up, and then they would make it into cakes which they would eat. And so God sustained them in the wilderness through this manna. But immediately after they celebrate this first Passover meal in the land, God ceases to provide that manna. And here's why. They're in the place where they can grow their own food. They finally arrived at their home. They're no longer pilgrims wandering in the wilderness in need of miraculous bread. God has provided them with the abundance of the land. And so for them, it is a, a, a wonderful moment where they realize that God's promises have finally come true. We're not wandering in the wilderness. We don't need manna. We have grain of our own, which we can grow in the land that God has given us, a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a celebration of their redemption, but it's also a celebration of rest. They've finally arrived in their new home. So, just as circumcision points forward to baptism, so also the Passover meal points forward to our Lord's Supper celebration. In the Lord's Supper, we have an ongoing meal of fellowship, just like the Israelites had with the Passover. And in this meal, we're reminded of the blood sacrifice of Christ, that his body was broken and that his blood was shed. And through faith in him, we are delivered from death and sin into eternal life through Christ. It signifies that God will offer freedom and life to all who believe in him. And like the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper is a meal where we celebrate it again and again. It's a meal that points to ongoing communion with God. It's the reason why we celebrate it each and every week. And it's a meal that points us to redemption and renewal and promise. It's a meal of redemption. By faith, all who have received Christ have received forgiveness. We're no longer slaves to sin and under the penalty of death. We've been freed through the sacrifice of Christ. It's a meal of renewal. Each and every week, we gather for an entire service in order to worship, and we end that service with a meal where our hearts have been prepared to renew our covenant relationship with God through the Lord's Supper. It's also a meal of promise. We celebrate it until He returns. There will be a time, just like the manna ceased when they entered the promised land, when this meal will cease because we are now in the promised land of the new heavens and new earth where Christ has come and we now see him face to face rather than by faith through a meal. It's a meal of promise that's meant to stoke our love and our affection and our hope that one day our faith will be sight. God had marked the Israelites as his people through circumcision. God had reminded them of his great act of redemption through the Passover meal. And all of this was in preparation for them to enter the land through conquest. These two covenant signs gave them confidence that God always fulfills his promise and that God can deliver his people from their enemies. And he culminates this celebration with this next episode where he drives these promises home. And this is our final point, point, covenant confidence, covenant confidence. Let's read together verses 13 to 15. So when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So the Israelites had arrived in the promised land, but they still had work to do. They just crossed over the Jordan. They still have to, through military force, take possession of the land. And in these verses, God is reminding them that he fights for and provides for all those who by faith embrace his covenant promises. He reminds his people of this reality by sending this angelic figure with a drawn sword to speak with Joshua. Now, as you can imagine, Joshua is probably somewhat perplexed. Suddenly standing before him is this figure, angelic figure with a drawn sword, which is an aggressive stance. And so Joshua is asking, are you with me or are you against me? And then this person clarifies, I'm not on your side or their side, I am the commander of God's army. And immediately Joshua is humbled. He recognizes he's talking to an emissary from the Lord, so he falls down on his face and he asks, what is the command of the Lord? And so then he's told to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. And what we have here is this moment of consecration. God is appearing to Joshua through this emissary. And this encounter, it's reminding him that, that God who is holy is present with them and that he is present to fight for his people. God is making clear that Joshua will not go alone into the land. The God who keeps his covenant promises is now going to fight for his covenant people. Now, bear with me now as I nerd out on a little illustration of this point. I recently had some friends over for dinner. They said all it's a prerequisite that all Presbyterian ministers love Lord of the Rings. And at some point, you use Lord of the Rings references. So here's my Lord of the Rings for this morning. So I recently reread the Lord of the Rings. And the books are definitely better than the movies, although I love the movies. And there are two moving moments in the books when kings of Middle-earth lead their people into battle. So the first moment is when Aragorn leads all of the, the men of the West into battle at the Black Gate against Sauron in order to distract Sauron's eye from Frodo and Sam who are trying to destroy the ring. And the second one, which I enjoy reading and watching even more, is when Theoden, king of Rohan, leads all of his horsemen onto the Pelennor fields right below Minas Tirith. So if all the nerds are loving me right now, some of you are <laughs> glassing over. But what I love about this, both in the books and in the cinematography of the movie, is they they show this picture of these people moving forward into battle in peril of death. And what you see is at the point of that spear of people is the king leading his people into battle. He's not sitting back sending others to die. He's at the forefront going before his people into battle in order to fight for them. Joshua is about to lead his people into battle against a foe that outnumbers him. And this angelic being, this commander of the Lord's army, reminds Joshua that it is not ultimately Joshua who will lead his people into battle, that the Lord God, their king, goes before them into battle and will defeat all of their enemies. All they need to do is bow the knee and worship to God, and God, their king, will fight for them. Friends, God is no less present to us and for us as his covenant people. We're no longer fighting battles to conquer physical enemies or take possession of physical land. Our enemies are spiritual, and the land we await is a heavenly one. However, Christ our King does fight on our behalf. He has already gone before us in life, in death, in resurrection. He's already defeated all of our spiritual enemies. He's defeated sin, he's defeated death. And by the power of his spirit, he's with us, present with us, never leaving or forsaking us, going with us as we walk through this life. Each and every day he is present with his people as we face trials and temptations, the setbacks and sufferings of this life. As we walk through the wilderness of this life, our king is always with us and he's always fighting for us. For all who believe in Christ, we are his covenant people. And God will be faithful to provide for and protect and fight for his covenant people. All those who have King Jesus as their covenant Lord, we can rest secure. If Jesus is for us, who can be against us? He who is in us is always going to be greater than anyone we will encounter in this world. King Jesus fights for us, his people, he delivers us, and in his presence we need not fear. In his presence we always have hope and salvation. Our king, our covenant God, fights for us, provides for us, and he does so for all those who by faith embrace his covenant promises. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. That even when our faith is weak, you give us promises that you signify and seal to us through baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so, Father, I pray that we would be reminded today that we have been sealed in baptism. And that by faith we have all the promises of forgiveness and cleansing and mercy and inclusion and adoption as your children. Father, as we come in just a few moments to celebrate your meal, the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would be reminded that no sin can ever separate us from you, that as we humble ourselves and come to you, you will always welcome us to your table in fellowship. And Father, I pray that these signs which we have and which we celebrate would point us to the great reality that King Jesus is our covenant king and that he fights for us and protects us and preserves us throughout this life. May we have joy and confidence in that this morning in Christ's name. Amen.